Good morning, everyone, and uh, it's great to be here. I'll give you a bit of a background on what we're talking about today because it's going to seem pretty random. Uh, so uh, last week I had the privilege of speaking at the church I grew up in at, and I get to go back there a time or two a year and speak, and I enjoy that. And they're working through, they're working through the passage of John, and so they gave me a section of Scripture in John 2, to speak on, and some of you will be familiar with it. It's early in Jesus' ministry as he starts off, and the passage we're going to be looking at is where Jesus goes to the temple on Passover, and he, yeah, does all this the crazy things. He's kicking people out, knocking over tables. He's he's cleansing the temple, and so this is the passage that I had to try and extract something out of. Uh, which was an interesting challenge, and that's what we're talking about today. So when Paul, you know, gave me a call or later in the week, I said, well, sure, but when you get kind of called last minute, you have a little bit of freedom to say, can I speak on whatever I want, because I'm not going to be able to speak on whatever you're speaking. And so, of course, that, that freedom was extended to me. So that's, that's what we're, we're talking about in, in, uh, in our uh, sermon this morning. So, by way of an introduction, um, there's quite a bit of fascination and, and uh, you know, history with this idea of God's dwelling place. And of course, if we go back in, into the Old Testament, uh, we, we learn about the tabernacle and uh, fascinating all of the symbolism, the way it was to be built, how it was to be built. And this, this dwelling place of God was this portable structure uh, of all kinds of different materials, and it was all specified, and there was meaning behind all of it uh, that, that, that went with them as, as they traveled. And, and that was the, the dwelling place of God. And of course, we know a little bit about uh, the temple and the Holy of Holies. Uh, later was constructed by Solomon in, in Jerusalem. And uh, uh, that uh, original temple that Solomon put up was, I mean, my... I'm averaging this out a little bit, but about 1,000 B.C., the first temple was, was built uh, in Jerusalem, Solomon. You'll remember in Scripture, David talked about the fact that we need to build a temple, but, but God said, no, you are a man of war. Your son will build the temple, but David started all the fundraising, which, of course, a lot of it came from him, and uh, Solomon actually built the temple uh, about 1,000 B.C., and then, of course, the temple had an interesting history for some time. And, of course, if you go and study biblical history uh, and the different things that happened, of course, um, not long after that, um, the Egyptians uh, sort of were ruling the world. Shortly after that, the Assyrians were ruling the world. Shortly after that, the Babylonians. And every time, things happened to the temple. So that first that first temple was actually destroyed um, about 70 years after it was built. Not, it didn't last very long. A second temple, however, you'll know from reading in Ezra and Nehemiah, a second temple was rebuilt, and that's in the mid, you know, 500 uh, BC, five, uh, about 586 BC. The second temple was constructed and um, um, and built, and uh, so, and it was it was destroyed not long after our story, our narrative, 70 years after Christ. Uh, well, actually, probably only about 40 years after Christ, um, in um, 
uh, A.D. 70 that the second temple was destroyed. And it never was to this point in time has been rebuilt. And in fact, if, you, if you're familiar with any Jewish uh, studies or anything regarding the temple, part of their prayers for some of the Orthodox Jews is to pray for the building of the third temple. So that was an interesting little piece of history that I, uh, and information that I dug up here. But now on our, uh, on, you know, in the place where our narrative takes place, the actual building that's there is a shrine, a mosque shrine. There is also a, uh, sorry, a Muslim shrine, and there is also a mosque on the Temple Mount uh, that's there. So it's a very different place uh, today than it was at the time of our story. Which, all of that history is fascinating because this idea of God dwelling in and amongst His people is a very paramount and important thing for us to be thinking about. We have a God who wants to be in relationship with His creation. And we read all of the things that had to happen because we had a holy God and an unholy people. And how was this holy God going to relate to His creation who turned away and went their own way? But He still wanted that. And so when we read in the Old Testament and we see some of the things that that they had to do in the construction of these buildings like the tabernacle and the temple and how, how detailed it was, how ritual it was in terms of the things that they had to both construct physically and the actual actions that they had to do. It was an incredible system that God had put in place to be able to relate to His creation because of this separation. And we know that separation came as a result of sin. And so here's God who, you know, previous to our passage is trying to make this happen and the people are pre- trying to be obedient to that and working through that. We have a whole system of sacrifice to deal with our sins so we can atone for that and relate to God. We have this building, the tabernacle, now the temple. And there's all of this stuff that's gone on in history and it takes us now to our narrative. So Jesus is just starting into his ministry. And the actual passage before this you may be familiar with is the wedding in Cana where his mother asked him to help out with the, uh, the lack of wine and he does his, one of his first miracles there. And then the Passover happens. So let's go to John 2 and uh, I'll read the, uh, the, the story here that we're going to talk about. So John chapter 2 verse 12 says, after this, after this is, he was, Uh, staying um, with his um, family. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables and exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, and overturned the tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered it, was, it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and how are you going to raise it in three days? 
But the temple he spoke of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men, and he did not need men's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. All right, we'll try and make some some sense and some implications out of this, but let me just pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. Father, we know that this, even this passage, which seems uh, so long ago, and we're just not sure how this applies, uh, Father, we know that it's it's from you. Uh, it's important. And so as we try to understand and extract some things from here, we just pray that uh, you do that and you'd open our hearts and minds to that and what it, what it means to me and to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's funny because I was thinking as I read this passage, I was like, okay, what, what's the direction we're going to go with this? Are we going to talk about righteous anger? Are we going to talk about, you know, we shouldn't be doing fundraisers in the church? Like, I, what, do you, what do you do with this? And um, that's not where we're going exactly, but I was intrigued at this idea of God's dwelling place, intrigued by... The fact that we have a relational God, uh, intrigued by the acts of Jesus, not only the physical acts of what he's doing there, but also this, this statement that uh, he was going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, which we know physically didn't happen. So is there something more here than, than meets the eye, perhaps? And... It's also fascinating, this verse in verse 17, zeal for my house will consume me. So there's a few things that kind of stood out to me as I started to read and pray through this and study this and go, okay, where can we go with this today? So really what I want to do uh, is just pull out some observations and then try and turn them into some implications for us in terms of, okay, what do we do with this information as we observe what happened is there some implications to us for today? So that's, that's where we're going to go. And our sermon in a sentence today is that the Lord dwells in his temple and the state of his temple is important. So I am actually proposing to you that God still dwells in a temple, in his temple. And so that will, for most of you, go, wait a, wait, <laughs> wait a second, how does that, what does that look like mean when there isn't a physical temple standing today? And we're going to talk about that a little bit. And we're going to, if we expand that idea or the sermon sentence applied, by observing and determining these implications from John 2, we can, we can understand and work, work through and, and what, what's the work to be done, what's the understanding we need to have to have God dwell in a holy temple. And this will start to make some sense as we go through here and do that. So let's talk about some observations. First of all, we know, and as I shared a little bit in the, in the introduction here, Worship and relationship with God was very ritualistic. There were a lot of things that you had to do. Uh, there was ceremonial cleansing that had to happen. You had to do a certain things. You had to sacrifice certain animals for your for your sins. Uh, there were certain. All, and, I mean, if you want to study it, it's fascinating what the people of God needed to do in order to relate to their God. A lot of rituals. And 
in many ways, we don't really appreciate the relational you know, abilities we have with God now as much as we would if we had a, had a, some sense of what that must have been like. You know, just the ongoing work and the things you had to do and how you had to do it and the, the frequency with which you had to do it in order to relate to your God. And we, we don't have that now on the other side of Jesus, and so that's an interesting factor. But at this time, worshiping God was very ritual. And that's just a, an interesting observation. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. It's the Passover. It's important. And a lot of the things that are actually happening in our narrative, the selling of animals, is because people would travel and then they would purchase an animal to be used as a sacrifice for their sins. Uh, Some of the money changing is that there was a temple tax that was charged and it was supposed to be paid in a certain uh, currency and people were coming from different parts of the the known world at that time, and they were operating in different currencies, and so they had to exchange those currencies. Of course, people were making money through the exchanging. People were, were extorting when it came to selling the animals and all this kind of stuff. And basically, what was supposed to be a place of worship and reverence and glorifying God was turning into this very deceitful, dishonest extortion market, etc., and, and, and we see Jesus come, come up against that you know, culture that's happening there, and he's, he's furious. I mean, we don't hear what his emotion is, but we can see by his actions that obviously he's not happy about it. All right? And so there was all this ritual, and there were certain things that people had to do to attain God's pleasure and to be free of the curse of sin. And it was ongoing. And I can only imagine, you know, you prepare a sacrifice get all the sins forgiven, I turn around, I stub my toe on a rock, and i got to go back and do it again. And this was, this was the tyranny, in some ways, that, that, that people had to live with this, this, how do we serve and please God? And of course, the tabernacle and the temple played a huge role in that. Second observation. Jesus takes seriously what happens in the temple where God dwells. So, for some of us, when we read this story, it seems very un-Jesus-like. You know, the picture that a lot of us have, the calm, the, you know, the, you know, Jesus, he's very loving and caring and so on, but this seems to be, from what a lot of us kind of think in terms of how Jesus is characterized, to be this furious, impulsive, you know, like violent uh, Jesus. And, and my only takeaway from that is that he is really serious about what's happening in God's temple. Very serious that he would behave, he would react like that. And it's, it's incredible. And so where this temple is to be a place that people meet God, worship God, and commune God, He takes that very seriously. And Jesus desires true worship. And that that's not to be abused or that's not to be forsaken. And he's very jealous. Jesus is very jealous of the worship that needs to take place in the temple. Okay, that's our second one. Our third one we see, which ties into this, Jesus actively, so he's not just upset, he doesn't just... 
yeah, somebody should really do something about that. He is actively doing something about this, and he is actually doing the work of removing from the temple that which is not in worship of God. He's just... It's all got to go. And he kicks like everything out. The animals, the tables get overturned, the people are kicked out of the courts of the temple, every, out of here. This is not in worship of God. It must be removed. And of course... What's interesting about this is that, say, well, hold on, you know, why was he so mad? I mean, is it not okay that we can provide some animals for some people? Is it, they have to pay the temple tax, so is it, is it not fair that there's some way that people, I got the wrong currency here that I can't exchange it? But we, but we know that Jesus knew more than what was happening. He could see deeper. He could see the motives. He could see the attitudes. He could see the pride. He could see this idea that human hearts, many of which were there, were not about worshiping God, but about serving themselves. And the very opposite to serving God or worshiping God is worshiping me, serving me. And so it wasn't just the physical actions of trade and exchange that riled Jesus, but Jesus also knew deeper inside, that there were attitudes, there were motives, there were other idols. And those things were not in worship of God. And so when Jesus comes in and he's jealous for our worship, he comes in and he has to deal with all that stuff. And there's more than meets the eye here. And if we jump to the end of our passage uh, there's this little section that we're, you know, this idea that Jesus, we get a sense that Jesus really understood man's hearts. Certainly on, in, in the place where we had not been redeemed. And so Jesus gets all this and he's like, okay, this is not at all a good thing. This is not at all in worship of God. So he removes that which is not in worship of God. And that's, we're seeing that in verse 15 and 16. Uh, the next one, um, you know, the, the, the um, chief priests or the leaders of the time said, okay, what, by what authority? So Jesus has the power and authority to do this work of making the temper, temple pure. Certainly because Jesus is in fact God. Now at that time there was people that were like, what? Even his disciples, and we read at the beginning of our passage, you know, people who were the considered Jewish teachers or leaders, they would have this group of people that would come with them and learn from them. And this is how knowledge was passed from, from one to another and how, how learning and teaching happened of the law and, and, and the prophets and so on. And so Jesus had this group or this following of people with him. And um, um, they're all kind of, hmm, what's going on here? Because, again, this is very new. Jesus really hasn't officially started his ministry yet. So they're just kind of like, what's going on? But, in fact, we know... And then we see the, the, the response from Jesus that, in fact, he does have the power. He, in fact, is God. And, in fact, he has the power to deal with this whole temple issue, this whole God is holy, this whole we are not, and how are these things going to come together? And we get a, a little bit of a foreshadow here. And, of course, the disciples and the people that were following him at the time, they didn't get it yet. Fair enough. But upon Jesus' death, 
And then when they see him again, they're starting to get the fact that, hold on here, this isn't, this isn't going to be about a physical temple forever. There's something else going on here in terms of how a holy God is going to relate to his creation. And hold on to that thought for a minute. So Jesus has the authority. He is, in fact, God. And, um, and so he has the, certainly the authority to deal with the temple and work and do what he needed to do. Uh, the fifth one, Jesus uh, will establish, we can say has established now, a new temple, a new dwelling place for God. And this is this mysterious thing that's happening as Jesus is standing. Jesus knows full well that 40 years from that point in time, that physical temple is going to be gone. Jesus knows full well that there isn't a temple there today. He knows those things. Yet, he knows that there's going to be and is preparing some way for us, for God, to be able to dwell in a temple, to be able to relate to his people. And it's this fascinating passage as you kind of read between the lines, knowing what we know now, listening to what Jesus is saying there. And it's, it's very interesting. Of course, he's talking about, you know, I'll destroy the temple and raise it again in three days. Now, of course, he's talking about his death and his resurrection, which is, that's terrific. But he's also talking about after the other side of that, what does that mean in terms of where and how God's going to dwell with his people? And that's getting to be very cool and very specific to us. And this is very neat. And then the last observation, um, mankind is weak. This is coming from the last section of verses there. And depraved. And we're in need of God's strength. So this plan of God's in terms of how a holy God's going to relate to his creation who we are full of sin and we've messed up and we've turned away is not going to necessitate something that man has to do in order to make that happen because we just can't. Not going to happen. And so we almost see again in in our text where where Jesus is understanding, of course does understand, and God that, that this way of connecting, this way of how God is going to dwell with his people is 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 going to include man, but it's not going to be of our doing. God's going to have to make a way. God's going to have to figure this out. God's going to have to sort this part out because we are not able to get to God on our own. And so those are some of the observations as I went through here and tried to think about these things. And now I want to, I want to take and talk about, okay, so what are some of the implications then uh, for you and I? So let's, let's take a look at that, some of the implications. Well, we now understand that the Holy Spirit of God okay, dwells in a new temple. And we believe that that is us, believers. We are the temple of God. Now, let's be clear. We are not God. right? But we do know from Scripture, we do know that because of the work of Jesus on the cross, that the Holy Spirit of God indwells believers. And because of that work on the cross, and because of that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have a connection, a relationship with God. And we don't have to go to a a building to have that. We don't have to do ritualistic things, and there's nothing wrong necessarily with, with things that have some ritual to them. But we don't have to do that now in order to relate to God because of what Jesus did. And now, in a sense... 
God's saying, I'm going to deal with the temple issue for now and forever. I'm going to make that my people. My people will be my dwelling place. And that is fascinating and has major implications for you and I. And Jesus knows that his, his ministry, his work, is leading up to the cross that's going to allow that to happen. Pretty cool. And now we're part of the narrative. We're, we're, we're there. We're, we're, we're in this. And that's pretty cool. Secondly, like Jesus, we ought to take seriously the holiness of God's temple. What's God's temple? You and me. Mmm, okay. And you know, as much as our narrative is about the fact that Jesus is cleansing that physical temple, this passage of Scripture is also as much about this temple. You can can point to yourself. This temple, you can say that. This temple, right? It's, It's as much about that time as it is today, and you and I. And the fact that Jesus takes seriously the holiness of his temple. And of course, we can, we can go, we don't have time this morning, but we, we, we can go to lots of passages of Scripture where we are supposed to be working with the help of the Holy Spirit on sanctifying ourselves, becoming holy, and in doing so, that is our worship. We'll talk about that. Before we get there, this idea that the third implication, so Jesus took it seriously, and just like in our story, he did something about it. We, if we take this seriously like Jesus did, need to do something about the things that are in this temple, in our lives, in my mind, in my heart, whatever you want to talk about, my attitudes, right? my behaviors certainly, right? my motives, my idols, those things we need to actively remove, root out anything inhibiting our worship of God, just like Jesus did. And only you know and God knows the things that are in your heart and mind and the behaviors perhaps you have that others don't know. You and God know what those things are and you need to be aware of those things and be trying to deal with those things with the help of the Holy Spirit, certainly, to deal with those things. And we need God through His Spirit to be continually cleansing the temple just like in our story. Right, and and that that is this idea. Now, let me be very clear here. We don't do this to attain God's love. Now, again, we were going to be talking about justification, which is this idea that it is nothing to do with us. It's God's outrageous grace that has come through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that has dealt with the sin issue and allowed us to be connected to God. In response to that, now is the question. What do we do? Not to attain it, we have it, but in response to it, we desire, we work at, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to have holy lives. Because now, the temple, the temple where we go to, you know, go to worship isn't, isn't a place, right? And we can worship here, but we come here on Sunday for corporate worship. And that's great, and we need to do that. But because we now are the temple of God, Everything you do, say, think, behavior, you are either worshiping or not worshiping God. 
And God resides with you. So it's not like, oh, I've got to get myself cleaned up to go to the temple to worship God. No, you got up in the morning and the first thing you did was in worship or not in worship of God. Because God dwells in you all the time. You're always in relationship with God. And everything we're doing, thinking, believing, motives, all that stuff is all the time 24-7 now because you and God are connected. And it's not this, oh, i got to do my ceremonial cleansing. No, it's full time. And that is both amazing and exciting and also humbling and challenging. Because when we really understand what God did for us, and we really understand that we had nothing to do with being connected to God, and we really understand, by God's grace, we don't have to do all this ritualistic stuff in order to have a relationship with God. When we really start to understand that, our response is just, okay, my life is lived for God. And everything I do and say and think is all for God's glory and in worship of God. Now, of course... That doesn't mean that all just naturally happens. We need the miraculous work of God, the Holy Spirit, working in and through us in order to see that happen. And that's, But we need to be involved. We need to be actively removing those things. And, of course, our, our uh, fourth thing there, Jesus has done the work of the Holy Spirit that, sorry, done the work, and the Holy Spirit that indwells has the power to deal with that stuff, the sin that's in us. And I know, and there's things that I struggle with, continue to struggle with, and sometimes I wonder, okay, Lord, where's the power of the Holy Spirit over this area in my life, over this attitude, over this thought, over whatever? And the reality is that the power is there and available to us. We need to continually be tapping into that. That's a whole other sermon series. But the fact is, is that the sin and the depravity that was in us no longer has authority or dominion over us. Jesus, by the work on the cross, has the authority, just like in our story, to deal with those things. And by the Holy Spirit, we can work through and deal with the sin and the issues in our life that are not in worship of God. And thankfully, that's the case, because on our own, we're not getting to God. It's only because of what God's done and his love for us, and his work on the cross, and so on, that chased after his creation to be in relationship with his creation that's allowed for that that to happen. And so Jesus has done the work, and the Holy Spirit indwells each of us that are believers, and with that we have the power to deal with the sin that's in our lives, the things that need to be removed and cleansed, and that is amazing. And now we don't worship God, sorry, and now we, we are now to worship God, pardon me, not in ritual, but with our lives, for we are the very dwelling place of God. And this is amazing, you know, it, we can talk to God, worship God, as I just said a, a few minutes ago, anything, everything, anywhere, anytime, because now... We don't have this special place and we don't have to have special people that are going to go into the Holy of Holies and represent between us and God. It's We have the direct connection with God. And in fact, God, by His Holy Spirit, indwells us, resides within us. And so we can just be in constant worship and appreciation of what God has done for us each and every, each and every day, each and every moment, every thought, every attitude, everything, every action. 
And that is, that is amazing. And so when we talk about God dwelling in his temple, he does. And the amazing thing about this is that this, this plan of God, it, it, it didn't now rely on a building. And it doesn't rely on whatever happens within human history in terms of, you know, whether a building's, you know, taken over by some country or another or anything like that. It doesn't rely on a specific place. It doesn't rely on a specific time or time of year or season. Each and every day, any moment, anywhere in the world, anybody who is in a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ has direct access to God. And, and that, is, that is incredible that that is where we are now. And that Jesus, in, even in our story, knew and was preparing for that to be the case. And that this passage of Scripture, by God's ordination, is still in our Scripture, and we learn from it from the fact that, you know what? And we need to take that seriously, that God dwells in each and every one of us that know Him through Jesus. Because that's how we communicate. That's how we commune with. That's how we relate to. That's how we have relationship with God. And that's, that's incredible. And now it's a plan that can be for anyone and can be for anywhere. And it's a plan that acknowledges the omnipresence of God who can be and dwell all over and anywhere, all at the same time. And it's just it's an incredible, incredible thing. And so we are a living act of worship. We are a living act of sacrifice. And it's reasonable for us to do that when we really understand what God has done for us. So wrapping this up, we have an incredible plan and conclusion that was unfolding at the time of our narrative. A plan that's not dependent on a building in a certain location, but displays God's omnipresence and includes each and every one of us now and for all the believers that have been before us and all the believers that are yet to come. God's temple is alive and well, and he dwells in it. And that's you and that's I. And that is amazing. That is amazing.